Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the 411th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Anna Lee Newitz, author, freelance writer, and Hugo Award-winning podcaster. And we're going to be talking about their book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapp-Zabital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show, which is referred to as Fadruk Danaren. And today we'll be talking about the book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, with Anna Lee Newitz, author, freelance writer, Hugo Award-winning podcaster. Welcome to our show, Anna Lee. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Can you tell our listeners why you decided to write um, this book, um, why you chose this particular cities, and how you ever knew that down the road that Jay would love every second of this topic? <laughs> <laughs> You've well, got let's vision. Start with my, I, my psychic link with Jay. Okay. Is totally <laughs> in working order. Um, so I. <laughs> um, but I, I've been um, I've been writing about archaeology for a long time um, as a science journalist, and I've been living in cities for a long time as a human. Um, and I've I've naturally been drawn to thinking about um, where did cities come from. Um, I always love to learn about the history of cities that I visit, even recent history. Um, and I really wanted to write a book about how cities kind of have life histories the way a person might, um, al although obviously a much longer history. And the thing that's interesting about city histories is that they're collective histories. They're sort of histories of um, groups of people that have come together, often really different groups of people, because, of course, one of the things I learned in the course of writing this book is that cities are almost always made by immigrants. Um, and when I say almost always, I should say, we don't know of any exceptions to that rule. There could be an exception, um, but uh, all the evidence points to the idea that cities are the creation, are, are immigrant creations. Um, and, and that also is super interesting to me. I love stories about how groups of people come together and, um, and build something against all odds that lasts sometimes for thousands of years. Um, and the cities that I picked were it was very deliberate. I spent a long time figuring out what cities I wanted to to discuss. Um, I knew that the cities had to be um, cities that had been abandoned because part of the question of the book is why do people abandon cities when they're so awesome? Um, or perhaps why did they even start cities because maybe they're terrible depending on your perspective about cities. Um, so I picked cities that were very far apart in time um, the oldest city in the book is about 9,000 years old. That's Çatalhöyük in central Turkey. So I wanted to have at least one city that was extremely ancient. Um, it's maybe not even a city at all. Like there's a lot of debate about uh, whether it's just a really giant village of 5,000 people or if it's a really small city. Um, and then I wanted to do um, cities that were uh, from traditions that were pretty well known to folks in the West. So I picked Pompeii. Um, and that's, um, you know, the city that famously was destroyed in a volcanic eruption. Um, and it turns out there's a lot of stuff about that that I didn't know and that most people don't know about how, um, how many people escaped from the eruption. It was actually just a very small number of people who were killed. And 
Um, and that was a very interesting tale. And then the other two cities that I talk about are from extremely different urban traditions. Um, one is Angkor, which is in today's uh, Cambodia. And it was the capital of the Khmer Empire, which was a vast, vast empire, very, very powerful uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, and I was interested in that city because the way it was designed and the way that the um, the urbanism took shape uh, is very different from urbanism in Europe, which I was more familiar with. Um, this is a city that existed in an area of climate extremes. And so a lot of their architecture is designed to withstand um, things like massive floods, um, which is something that here in the United States, we're starting to have to think about a lot. So I was interested in that. And then the last city, Cahokia, um, is in southern Illinois. It's right across the river from St. Louis. It was an amazing uh, indigenous city. It was the biggest city in North America a thousand years ago. It would have been quite a place to visit, um, almost as cool as St. Louis. Um, and in <laughs> fact, part of the city was located in St. Louis. Um, it was a massive, sprawling city built from huge earthen mounds. Um, and again, it was from a very different urban tradition um, from European style city building. Um, and of course, it's a, a jewel, uh, an, ar an archaeological jewel in North America. And so naturally, I wanted to, to talk about that because I think, um, you know, it, it really is should be one of our most treasured places in, in North America. And, um, and it really isn't. And so I wanted to make sure that people knew about it. Right. Um, so Cahokia is the last one that you talk about, but because it is so close to us, because we are also on the Mississippi River here in Davenport. Um, That's right. So uh, let's let's start with Cahokia. Um, and something you said earlier jived with the way you talked about that place in your book, which is the idea that cities are living things and that they they breathe and and they you know like cells they wear out and the cells are replaced by other cells and so forth and so on can you talk a little bit about that idea of the organic city sure yeah i mean i think in a sense all cities are kind of organic um but the way that cities come to be um you know really vary and what's interesting about cahokia is that um, as far as we can tell from um, archaeological digs, this was a city that was built very quickly. Um, it was built on the site of, um, you know, some villages. There were, uh, you know, tribes of uh, indigenous folks who were living in villages and fishing in the Mississippi. And then suddenly this new group of people came in uh, and just over a very short period of time, built these massive earthen pyramids, um, the, the largest of which, which still stands, uh, has a footprint the size of the Great Pyramid at Giza. So it's big and it's, it's shaped sort of in a pyramid shape. It has a flattened top. Um, it's known today as Monk's Mound. Um, and this was kind of at the heart of a really large urbanized area uh, that had a lot of earthworks. It has a lot of elevated causeways. It has a lot of other ceremonial mounds. We don't know what all the mounds were used for. The city is just full of mounds of all sizes and shapes. Um, and some of them may have been ceremonial. Some of them might have been like signposts. Um, we just don't really know. Um, they were obviously used for a lot of different things. Um, and so what's interesting here is that it's left archaeologists wondering, um, you know, what was kind of the spirit that animated the city? Like what drew people there? Why did they suddenly build this place so quickly? Um, and 
one of the answers um, that I talk about in my book is that it was kind of a social movement. Um, it's sometimes called a revival movement um, to kind of uh, to, to foreground the fact that it may have been a spiritual movement. Um, but we don't know, like when we're looking back at this society, um, we don't, you know, we don't know um, who these people were. Uh, they didn't leave any writing that we can recognize behind. So we don't know if it was a politi- more of a political thing or, or a religious thing, um, but it seems like they kind of came together with common cause um, and then the city was quite packed. It maybe got to be about 30,000 people spread over a really, really large area of, of farms as well as, as um, uh, neighborhoods. Um, and then it kind of empties out after about 300 years. I mean, it, it doesn't, um, it isn't like a European city where um, there's this kind of idea that cities should be built to last, even if they ultimately won't last. I think there's this idea we have in the European tradition that like a city should be immortal and like we're going to build with stuff that will, you know, people in 10,000 years will see our great Walmarts, you know, or whatever, right? Uh, There's no such thing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) But like there's this, there's this idea that like, you know, some of our great buildings will, will last. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, evidence um, both from contemporary indigenous nations and tribes and their belief systems, um, but also what we've kind of put together from the historical record, um, that maybe that wasn't what these people were thinking. The framers of Cahokia may have been like, you know what, let's build a city here for a little while. And it doesn't have to last. Like, we'll build it really fast. People will come. You know, maybe it'll last for a little while. Maybe it won't. But when we're ready, we'll just leave. Um, and it really seems like it was kind of it was not intended to be a place that people lived in at that size forever. You know, they, they did leave beautiful monuments behind, obviously, in the form of these mounds. But um, that's one of the things that's super intriguing about it is that it seems like it may have been a temporary city in a sense. Well, um, I have uh, I have a quick question for you. We've got about a minute and a half or so. Um, so I, before we leave Kokia, cause I know we're going to want to talk about other things. One of the individuals you talked about that may be associated, uh, is a, an individual called Redhorn. Can you talk in just very briefly about Redhorn and, and how Redhorn maybe fits in both with Cahokia, uh, as an ancient city and with more, uh, modern indigenous, uh, belief systems? Yeah. So um, one of the big questions is what happened to the people of Cahokia. And uh, one of the widely accepted ideas is that uh, eventually they kind of merged with Suin tribes and nations. And there's a Suin hero named Redhorn um, who appears in a lot of different stories, doing getting into a lot of mischief um, and, and being like a pretty fierce warrior. And he has um, the horn uh, of his title is... He has his hair um, in a kind of in a ponytail that curves up over his head um, and it's dyed red. Um, so he has this like super badass. Red, um, <laughs> mohawk kind of. Yeah, right. Yeah, you definitely <laughs> identify him. Yeah, it's, it's not quite a mohawk, but the idea is the same. Yeah, but it's like a very it's a very cool looking um, hairstyle. And um, so because he, he's just he's a superhero, like there's there's no question. And there's um, at Cahokia. Um, archaeologists have found 
um, drawings, and not just at Cahokia, but in other Mississippian sites that would have been culturally connected to Cahokia, they found images that look like they could be red horn. And so that's very exciting because it would suggest that there is some cultural continuity between the people at Cahokia and uh, modern Siouan peoples. And um, I think that that could very well be the case. Um, it wouldn't be surprising at all to see that kind of continuity. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Annalee Newitz, author, freelance writer, and Hugo Award-winning podcaster. And we're talking about their book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. And Terry, you get the first question. Yes, I'd like to talk next about Pompeii. Um, I'd been there about a decade ago and was just fascinated with it, especially going down the main avenue, which they kind of described as the boulevard, and all of the unique qualities and characteristics of Pompeii. I'd like to know, though, someone had told me, though, that two-thirds of the population were actually either enslaved or laborers. Was that a common feature for some of these um, ancient urban sites? Yes, we have some pretty good evidence, at least for Rome um, and for Roman cities, that that absolutely was the case. That, um, you know, if you were just walking down a street in a Roman city like Pompeii, um, two thirds of the people you encountered would either be enslaved or people who had formerly been enslaved. And that was just uh, part of their civilization. It was part of how they managed labor. Um, and it was a system that was very much questioned. It wasn't like um, everyone thought it was natural and okay. Um, there was a lot of debate over whether this was a good idea or not. Um, and so that's part of what's really fascinating about learning about this history is that, um, you know, people never really accepted being enslaved as, as an okay or a good idea. Ed. Yeah. Annalie, you mentioned that uh, of these four cities are organized differently uh, as urban mm-hmm. areas. Uh, how does an archaeologist, um, how's, how are they able to discern um, how a city was organized? That's such a great question, and it's something that archaeologists debate a lot and talk about all the time because it's incredibly hard, right? Cities are huge. And it's very difficult to know what an entire city looked like based on just digging a hole somewhere in the middle of the city. And so there's a lot of different, very modern techniques for doing this. And one of the most interesting to me is using remote sensing technology. So um, you can use ground penetrating radar um, at 
a place like Pompeii that's been buried under volcanic rock um, to do things like see walls and structures underground. Um, luckily, ground-penetrating radar works great through volcanic ash. Um, it doesn't work great in other areas. So in other places like at Cahokia, when they're trying to map out where houses were and a lot of that stuff is buried under, you know, a couple of maybe like a meter of um, earth, uh, they use magnetometry. Um, so they have a magnetometer, which basically measures differences in very, very, very slight differences in the Earth's magnetic field. Um, and if you go very carefully, if you get your grad student <laughs> to wear a heavy magnetometer and walk wow. out in a field. Yeah, no, there's a, a lot of this stuff you have to imagine, including with the ground penetrating radar. You have to imagine there is a very tired grad student. Like, I thought you said they were against around. slaves in some form, and then you got this here. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. No, you know, indentured servitude within academia is, you know, an, an ongoing thing. Um, yes, it is. So, so, yeah, so you can use uh, magnetometry also to see buried structures. You can see places where the earth has been disturbed or where there have been um, hearths or fires. Um, and then, even more excitingly, uh, at, at Angkor, what they've done is used um, helicopter-mounted LIDAR devices to bounce lasers off the surface of the Earth. And, uh, you know, when those lasers bounce back up to the LIDAR device, um, it allows you to create an elevation map of an area. And the reason why this is really great in places like Angkor is that the whole city is now covered over with jungle, basically. Right. And so by doing this LIDAR studies, which were only done in like the last 10 years, they were able to see the remains of roads and house foundations and reservoirs that they just couldn't see with the naked eye because it was just covered in jungle. And so they were able to like unveil the entire city layout, um, which was a, just a huge revelation. So those are a few of the things that we do now. Do the graduate students get to use the lasers, or are they pretty much not allowed to have the fun with the good toys? <laughs> like I said, I mean, they are using a lot of that stuff. Now, the, the lasers, you know, you got to have, like, a I know. But, like, yeah. And a helicopter that yeah. nobody can yeah. fit yeah. into. Why can't yeah. the hel graduate student no, drive yeah, the helicopter? A quick, yeah, that's not happening. No, a quick question with the Turkish town that you mentioned from 9,000 years mm -hmm. ago. Where is its location is in Turkey? I'm, I'm making a guess here that it's somewhere along the Tigris or Euphrates, or where exactly is this? And uh, it's you, in sorry, yeah, it's in central Turkey in the Cappadocia region. Um, it's right. It's sort of in the same area as Gobekli Tepe, which is another really ancient site that, that you that archaeology buffs are probably pretty familiar with. Um, and it actually it was not near a giant river, um, but it was originally built next to two very healthy streams um, that are no longer there. So they're, they're, it was in a landscape that was much more, um, it's in a uh, a plain. It's called the Konya Plain. It's right next to the city of Konya, which is quite a big metropolis. And it used to be kind of crisscrossed with rivers that, that are now gone. So it was a great place to be 9,000 years ago, but now it's a bit too dry. Okay. Um, and so that leads me to to where I was, to one of the other interesting things, um, and, and that's the, the, the power and influence of water on uh, ancient cities, on ancient urban areas. Um, how do you manage an anchor is the one that you talk the most about in terms of, you know, here's a really challenging hydraulic situation because you have 
extreme rains, you then have droughts, you have to manage water on both sides of that equation. Can you talk a little bit about how Inc., the, the folks of Angkor managed these water issues that they had to control? Yeah, I mean, basically, they had just extraordinary water engineering and uh, very, very advanced and complex. And they had a system of uh, human-built canals, uh, many of which brought down water from the mountains. There, the city is at the ba- is sort of in the like at the base of the Kulin Mountains that um, would have had you know fresh, freshly melted uh, snow uh, feeding their streams. So they also had massive reservoirs. So um, Angkor is at the nexus of two different monsoon systems. So they would kind of get a double whammy monsoon. And with these incredibly huge reservoirs, I'm talking like eight kilometers long, um, they would just fill these with rainwater. um, So that then during dry season, not only would they have these canals bringing in water from the mountains, they would also have all this water that was stored up that they could use not just for drinking, but for agriculture. And there was also a tradition of people having their own private water sources. They would almost everyone had a pool in their backyard or a pool that they shared with a few neighbors. Um, And so it was basically a city built around water And, of course, a lot of their spiritual practices also involved stories about water. And so it was this very beautiful balancing of kind of uh, spiritual practices also having this pragmatic side to them where, you know, we want to represent water because it's part of our belief system, but also we need water. So (laughs) how convenient. How many many people lived in, are they guesstimating, lived in that city, um, the, the one we just finished talking about? Angkor. Angkor, yeah. Yeah. Angkor uh, had about a million people, which makes it one of the biggest cities in the world a thousand years ago. So we're used to thinking like, oh, but Europe had these great big cities. And it was like, nope, they were dwarfed by this incredible Southeast Asian city. Um, and it's just they they had to do so much to keep those people, you know, fed and to have enough drinking water and really the city's biggest um, dramas all involved maintaining water infrastructure. And so it's funny because we think now like infrastructure week, ha ha ha. But for people in Angkor, it was really like life or death. Like politics really did have to revolve around water infrastructure and that when their politics went bad, it was reflected in, um, you know, poor infrastructure maintenance. Okay. Terry. Yes. I'd like to return to Catahoulik and I have a question. I'd read that archaeologists there look for the, what's called the dairy line. And the significance, especially, is because it, I read it said where humans had stopped looking for their place within nature, but started changing nature to suit themselves. Can you talk about that, please? Sure. So the dairy line is an actual literal line um, in the excavation site at Chitalhoyuk. So Chitalhoyuk um, is a big city, and the excavation pit there. Um, is enormous. It's about the size of a football field and almost as deep as a football field, you know, if you could turn a football field on its side and kind of um, have it angled into the earth. And so um, as you're looking down into this deep pit, there is actually a line marked with a kind of a rebar um, stake with a little flag on it. Um, And that's the point in history where archaeologists start to see people cooking with milk. So they're not just hunting animals 
they're actually keeping goats for their da- for dairy products. And we know this because um, uh, chemists have analyzed the um, potsherds that we found and found residues of dairy that were, you know, obviously milk was being added to stews or maybe they were cooking with dried milk. Um, so the reason why it's sort of a moment when we think of people starting to change their environment more um, is because they started engaging in animal husbandry. So it's not just, you know, kind of going out into nature and grabbing an animal. It's, you know, the animal becomes kind of part of your family. And people, there's a lot of evidence um, that people would keep families of goats for generations. Like it would be your family's little group of goats and, um, you know, you'd raise them and breed them and uh, use their milk. And that was, you know, part of your family legacy. Okay. Ed, you got the last question. We got about two minutes left. So, okay. Um, can you uh, give us your take on why these uh, these great cities um, kind of just faded away or collapsed, whichever one uh, or both? Um, but can you can you uh, shed a little insight on that for us, please? Sure. So one of the things I learned in doing this book is that none of these cities actually collapsed in the sense that we think of in in kind of the modern world. Like there was no mass death. There was no sudden everybody run away. Like, it's not like Monty Python, where it's just like, run away, run away. <laughs> um, it's, it was, in each case, it, it really was a long period of time that the city emptied out, like on the order of hundreds of years. So none of these cities, except for Pompeii, of course, like that, you know, people got out of that city real fast. Uh, but in the other three cities, it, it definitely took at least 100 years for them to go from being big, thriving cities to being pretty empty. And in each case, what we see is a pattern where there's political instability that's coupled with environmental problems. So environmental problems could be drought or floods uh, or a giant volcano. <laughs> right. Um, or those environmental problems could be like at Angkor where they just weren't maintaining their water infrastructure. So their built environment was having problems. But what you see over and over again is that cities can survive political uncertainty. They can survive climate problems. But if you have them both at the same time, that's when people start to leave. So it's the double whammy. Okay. Uh, it is customary for us to give our guests the last word on the show. Annalie, we've got about a minute left. Why do you think knowing about the rise and decline of ancient cities is relevant in today's world? Uh, think of global warming, but go on. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> global warming would be part of it. I think right now we're having a lot of anxieties about whether our cities are going to survive, partly because of global warming, partly because we are going through a lot of political instability and change. And I think that looking back to the life stories of these cities helps us understand what we're going through now in context and realize, like, humans have been through this before. We've survived it before. And maybe we can learn a better way of surviving this time by looking back on the mistakes that our ancestors made. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant, 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 411th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show, which was titled Kayla's Theme, was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Annalee Newitz, author, freelance writer, and Hugo Award-winning podcaster. And we've been talking about their book, Four Lost Cities, The Secret History of the Urban Age. The history buffs for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>